I don't have all the answers. I'm not entirely sure. Um, may, maybe nuclear is just not as sexy as wind and solar. Um, but I mean, I I definitely think the math is in your favor. Uh, you know, if you if you want abundant electricity, definitely definitely look at nuclear. So I I think we make a great partner um, to the clean energy movement, and I would love if we could, uh, you know, generate some excitement around nuclear technology. Hello and welcome to the Energy Talk podcast. My name is Olubumi Olajide and thank you so much for joining us on episode two of our third season of the podcast. Today we're talking about nuclear energy and this is a topic I've wanted to revisit for quite a while. We've only had um, two episodes about nuclear energy so far. The first one was in our first season and the second was part of our campfire series in case you caught that. Today we're going to be talking about nuclear and going to be focusing more on the people in the nuclear industry and not so much on the technology because I believe many of the misconceptions around nuclear comes from the fact that many people aren't associated with people who work in the industry and so nuclear seems very far away from regular conversations and I want to try my best to normalize those conversations and to do this we're going to be joined by two wonderful guests to guide us into this conversation. Matthew and Amanda from NAYGN, that's the North America Young Generation in Nuclear. And I was introduced to them by the former president of NAYGN, Lee Cozzi. Lee, thank you so much for connecting us and making this wonderful episode possible. So let's dive into the conversation and learn more about nuclear and the people behind it and the role it's going to play in the energy transition. Enjoy the episode. So I'm... Amanda Lang. I'm uh, the public information officer with North American Young Generation in Nuclear. I've been in the nuclear industry for almost seven years. Uh, it's what my bachelor's and master's is in. I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison. I went to college in Wisconsin. Um, I interned with Exelon. I interned at Idaho National Lab, um, and I really fell in love with core design engineering. Um, and so after I graduated, I went to Duke Energy in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and so I'm a core design engineer. And um, I guess I really got into nuclear. Um, it was kind of more in, in middle school. Um, I, you know, kind of was learning about electricity and how important it is. Um, so, you know, if you think about throughout the world, uh, how much time, especially women, spend uh, doing manual labor, like washing clothes, washing dishes, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I grew up with awesome appliances. So I you know, didn't have to do all that necessarily, uh, but the difference was really electricity. Um, and, it, and so I was like, okay, it's, electricity is a really important thing for people to have time to pursue education, pursue other um, aspirations. And so then I kind of looked at, well, there's different types of electricity, uh, or there di there's different types of generation uh, to get electricity. And so which types have, uh, you know, if we want everyone to have ample access to electricity, we have to consider the 
um, kind of effect on the environment. And so nuclear is because it's very energy dense, it's really a, a good uh, option there. So that's kind of how I got into the industry and what I'm doing now. Um, uh, North American Young Generation Nuclear, uh, we're a professional organization for uh, pretty much the US and Canadian. Um, we're dominated by nuclear power industry workers. Um, so a lot of people who work at nuclear plants or um, I actually, I work at corporate, so um, there, there's a little bit of variety. But yeah, a lot of nuclear plants throughout the US and throughout Canada. Um, and our goal um, is professional development. So opportunities to develop our members uh, with skills to be, you know, to energize the future uh, leaders in nuclear and public information, which is my realm. So we do a lot of public outreach. We go to classrooms. We organize some contests for kids, like a, a drawing contest and an essay contest. Um, we've done teacher workshops, essentially just trying to encourage um, kids to get involved in STEM um, and then maybe pursue a career in nuclear. We also um, dabble in more, you know, adult outreach and trying to, you know, explain the benefits of nuclear to the public. Uh, we also have a government outreach branch where we get involved in policy and we've we've spoken on Capitol Hill and visited representatives that kind of thing in the US and then um, Canada Matt can speak more to this but they they are very active as well in in testifying at, at different um, hearings and such so again we we try to provide networking events so that you, we can have um, connections uh, outside your company so you know, maybe you, you have a question for a colleague, but you don't have an exact match at your, at your company, then you can, you can go uh, and meet someone else to associate with. Those are really the, the major ones. Um, we have a benchmarking and career report uh, that has lots of stats, everything from salary to diversity information. Um, so that's another product we put out. But yeah, that's kind of NIYGN in a nutshell. Uh, so my name is uh, Matthew Meiringer. And uh, yeah, I grew up in Canada just uh, outside of Toronto. I studied nuclear engineering and uh, went to school at University of Ontario Institute of Technology. And uh, then after that, I uh, did my internship at a utility, so uh, at Ontario Power Generation at the nuclear station there and uh, really went straight into the nuclear industry and uh, really saw a gap like you saw as well, where not enough people knew about it, not enough people were talking about it. And uh, I was really concerned about the future. I really thought this was the, one of the, the best solutions. Uh, so that's why I definitely started to get involved, look for something more. NAYGN, as Amanda said, is a nonprofit organization. Uh, we have over 100 chapters all across North America. In Canada, we have 13, so I'm the Canadian Operations Officer. So really, I try and harmonize what they're doing in the States with what's uh, going on here in Canada. Uh, we have a lot of partnerships going on right now, so we're working with the Canadian Nuclear, Canadian Nuclear Association, Canadian Nuclear Society. We also work with uh, Canadian Women in Nuclear. We just signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the Electricity Human Resources Canada organization as well. So really, it's to try and go to schools, it's to try and go to uh, 
high schools as well to let people know more about it. But we also do international outreach as well. So we get involved for the United Nations, for the Clean Energy Ministerials. Okay, so thank you for that. And uh, Amanda, just before you joined the call, I was just talking to Matthew about how uh, even people in the energy industry, who people who know a lot about energy, have a huge gap when it comes to nuclear, especially when it comes to like what the role nuclear plays in, especially in climate change and energy transition as well. So I just want to ask you guys, um, what, what was your uh, initial reactions when you got into the nuclear industry? As, as young people, did you feel like it was something that uh, was positive or did you just have not any uh, formed opinions or strongly formed opinions at that point in your careers? So me personally? I, um, so again, this, it dates back to middle school. I was definitely like comparing energy sources. And so nuclear, a lot of people might not know this, but nuclear is carbon free. Um, and so it's really important to um, preventing climate change. And so if you, in the US, it's about 20% of the electricity, but it's 55% of our carbon free electricity. And so nuclear is huge if you want reliable, abundant electricity that's carbon free. Um, and it, and so, I mean, it, if you compare it to like fossil fuels, um, so natural gas or coal, a lot of that is a huge chunk of our electricity generation. Um, but nuclear is kind of the other large chunk and that chunk is carbon free. So then if you look at other carbon free sources, so, then you're comparing nuclear to hydroelectric to wind to solar. And uh, nuclear also has some, some huge benefits there too in terms of reliability um, and adaptability. It can be deployed anywhere. And some of the uh, technologies Matt was talking about with SMRs is we're hopefully we'll see nuclear in a very remote locations soon um, and in on a smaller scale than we've seen before so that it can support microgrids and that type of application. So I, I was a bit later. I, I got involved in, in high school. So in high school, we were basically given an open essay that we could just research anything on. So I started to think about, uh, I, I knew I wanted to go into something math and science related. And uh, I thought what would be a stable job that could make a difference in the world for pollution, for um, getting people out of energy poverty, for supplying people what they need. So that to me was electricity. That's something that we're certainly not going to use less of going forward, especially as developing nations get uh, get uh, to the developed stage as well. There's so many people without electricity. And then um, it was just, just a little bit of research just sold me on nuclear. It's just something that first off sounds amazing when you say it's just nuclear energy. It just sounds so impressive to study. And it's, it's so complex, but it's so simple as well. It's just boiling water to turn a turbine. That, that's really what it comes down to. So um, yeah, it, for me, it was high school that, uh, that really sold me. Um, it was electricity, and I thought that was one of the biggest ways to make a contribution to pollution, to energy poverty, as well as getting people the electricity they need. So that's what sold me. Mm. Uh, I'm actually glad you guys, you guys mentioned energy access because a lot of what we, we focused on last season on the podcast was about energy access. So uh, I'm from Nigeria, and uh, a lot of nations in the sub-Saharan African region have very low electrification rates. And uh, there is a large push for different methods, mostly around renewable energy, mostly solar, and developing microgrids. But uh, 
there is this huge gap that not enough people are talking about that that's kind of being filled by the fossil fuel industry, mainly through natural gas. But uh, renewables don't really do well when it comes to the development cycle that these countries are in because most of them are pre pre-industrial and they don't have all these big systems set up. There's a very large gap in infrastructure and all these things for like accelerated development that we need to stay competitive because that's 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 just really the case. And uh, it's so fascinating okay. how nuclear is so excluded from the conversation, especially in that region, because uh, it's 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 something that almost seems out of reach. And I just want to get you guys' opinion about that. All right, I, I guess I'll start. Um, I, I think it's just our industry has done a very bad job over the years of just selling the image that nuclear can uh, find these gaps in the developing nations. And I think that's where small modular reactors are really going to fill in the gap. Uh, because like you said, uh, renewables really can't start a developing nation off. If you're trying to get stability in the country and you want to get manufacturing up and going, you can't have it with a source that is going to be intermittent, that may be on, may be off. And if you're talking about grid complexity, uh, adding intermittent sources just makes the grid so much more complex. It's such a harder problem to solve. Even developed nations are, are struggling with that right now. So that's really where I see small modular reactors with nuclear now that they can be modular in design, they can be scaled up. So if if you're looking to start small and you want to test them out, you can add additional units. And also now you're not looking at, you know, a thousand megawatt reactor source because that may be the entire country's um, needs at the moment. So you need something smaller. So that could be a micro modular reactor, uh, just, uh, just under a megawatt, or it could be a couple megawatts and it's got that scalability factor. So I think in the past nuclear maybe was not part of that discussion since it had just the large units. But now as we're getting to the smaller scale, as, as well as having other type of uh, uses that we can have for them. So with the waste heat now, they could be using to split oil. They could be used for hydrogen. It just makes it much more attractive to uh, developing nations as well. Yeah, so I was going to say the the history of nuclear is is very political, right? So we developed this technology with um, atomic bombs in mind. And so uh, then afterwards, we kind of moved towards the atoms for peace. And so how to use nuclear technology for peaceful purposes and that we have this abundant energy source. But it's always been tied to those um, proliferation concerns. And so um, I I think that has shaped the the conversation around nuclear and where it's been developed. So the International Atomic Energy Agency, um, they kind of have a dual purpose that they they want to promote the peaceful use of nuclear technology, but then they're also known as the nuclear watchdogs, right? So they're the ones you see in the news um, who go in and you know, say if, if there's a, a, somebody is misusing nuclear technology, right? And so I think maybe that has been why there's always been like a, a separation between certain nations having the technology um, and then it, it, it not being available for some of those um, applications and you were saying specifically the Sub-Saharan um, Africa region. And so I think 
now we're kind of, especially with the small modular reactors, because it's, it's much more feasible to get it into an area where the grid doesn't exist before. And also, um, a lot of those are very proliferation resistant. And so by proliferation, I mean somebody taking out the nuclear material and doing something um, not, not peaceful with it. Uh, so if, if you have proliferation resistant reactors that don't need to be opened up, they kind of come encased and you're never dealing with the fuel, that opens up a lot of possibilities. Um, and so some exciting stuff is going on. I know in Puerto Rico, so part of the United States, but an island that has never had nuclear, they're looking at, it's, there's a project called the Nuclear Alternative Project. And so they are looking at nuclear there for the first time. And I know the Breakthrough Institute, uh, Jessica Lovering, they have uh, done some talks throughout Africa about bringing nuclear to Africa. So to me, it's kind of an exciting time that maybe this SMR technology is where we really will finally see nuclear um, more widespread. Definitely. And uh, just going out to the role of NOIDN, because I, I spoke to Lee about, about the organization and about the role it plays specifically for young people inside the nuclear industry. And I'm just so curious, how, how important do you think NOIDN was important for you guys when you got started in the, in the industry? Did you see that as a good way to make you more uh, aware about the things going on in the nuclear industry? And do you think that plays a part in you wanting to remain in the industry and being so passionate about it right now? Yeah, so I think uh, NYGN was originally started because there's this huge divide. Uh, it's like a, a double hump curve, right? So there's a whole bunch of people in like 50s, 60s um, who got into nuclear way back in the 80s. And then throughout the 90s, nobody was interested in going to nuclear engineering school, right? And so there was this uh, divide in the workforce. And so how do we allow the younger people to come in and still, you know, get involved, do some cross-training, get some knowledge transfer, and give them some leadership roles um, before the older generation retires? And so that was kind of the premise um, and the, the workforce hasn't changed dramatically. There's still um, kind of that uh, two uh, big groups, you know, and not a lot of people in the middle. And so for me personally, I know um, NAYGN was a, a big influence on my life. Um, it really helped me connect with my peers, socialize with my peers. Um, and through that, I got some interesting opportunities, um, you know, speaking at NRC meetings. I was never much into public speaking, so that was a, you know, that was a, a big deal in my mind. Um, another, you know, it, it gives you a safe space to practice your leadership skills. Um, and really, yeah, you're, you're right. Like, it kind of, if you're going to go out and talk to a classroom or talk to a group of adults, you have to have, you have to be on top of the nuclear issues right of the day because you might get questions on that so it, it's a good way to stay involved yeah and um, my experience with NAYGN so I started when I was just starting full-time at the uh, at the nuclear station and uh, they hire us in batches of young professionals so they hired I, I believe it was uh, 41 of us all engineers all at once uh, so we, you know, definitely wanted to connect. We definitely wanted to stay involved. So we joined curling teams together. We joined the workplace softball teams together. 
but really what I saw NAYGN with was it hits so many different boxes. So there's, there's the networking side. So we would have Blue Jays games that we'd go to. We'd have mixers. We'd have all these different types of events where I got to other young people, uh, and not even just from my company, but from other sections, from other companies. Um, and that was just such a great experience, you know, just to have fun after work, but also to connect with other people. And I've still kept in touch with quite a few of them, or if something comes up at work at their company, uh, then I they reach out to them. It's a, such a small industry. But then I also want to get involved with community service. So through NAYGN, we would do our uh, food drives, we do our charity events, we do all these different things. So that fulfilled that uh, giving back to the community. For networking, we ran lunch and learns, and we had facility tours. And just like Amanda said, doing the commission hearings for the CNSB, uh, going to the United Nations, uh, doing reports through all these different groups, it's just such a direct avenue to make change happen. So I just found it was, um, you know, it's, it's just the best way to accelerate your career and to make a difference rather than wait until you're uh, in senior leadership in your company can just get involved right away from a young young age and that uh, you have the organization that just gives you so many different opportunities. There's so much partners throughout the nuclear industry. We're partnered with the government of Canada. We're partners with the, uh, the American government as well. So we're recognized through that. We're trying to get the nonprofit status with the United Nations. So like I said, it's a preset pathway to, to make a difference. Hmm. And uh, just going back to the point that Amanda mentioned, I think she made, she called it the double hump curve about the age divide in the nuclear industry. Um, do you think that that is still something that is still the case? Because even now, there's a lot more conversations than usual about energy. I think most of it is motivated through uh, the, the climate change movement and how much, much more young people are getting into that movement and realizing the importance of it. But that doesn't necessarily translate into more interest in nuclear. We just want to talk about this divide in the age in the age demographic and why people don't still see don't connect nuclear necessarily with uh, solutions to climate change from your experiences. So I'd say um, right now what we're going through is there's not a lot of young people going into nuclear, but it it all depends on which country you're talking about. So some that are starting up a new nuclear program, so the United Arab Emirates that are just starting up their reactors, uh, there'll be a lot more interest. But with the political uncertainty of the future of nuclear in Canada and the States, uh, it's really sending a message to people in schools that, okay, maybe this isn't the thing to study right now. That's where SMRs are kind of this new and novel thing. And we saw it in Netflix, Decoding Bill, episode three, where he talks about uh, his startup company and uh, talking about uh, climate change there. So I think that's really our next step is addressing how nuclear will make a difference in climate change, in fighting pollution, in energy poverty. So it's really, for young people, that's what they're looking for, is something to get involved that's gonna make a difference. And I think that's really our next step is to address that. Because the older generations may uh, already connect it in their mind with, with atomic weapons or Fukushima, or they have these preset uh, ideas in their minds. But if we go to schools, if we talk about the opportunities and just how much opportunities there are in the nuclear industry, it's not just nuclear engineers and trades. You have the marketers, we have the, the social media interactions, we have the communication specialists, we have the lawyers, we have all these different people that are, that are helping out that I, I don't think people think about when they go to, to school for. Yeah, so I think there's, uh, 
in the environmental movement, there's definitely an old guard and kind of the new energy. Um, so old guard would be uh, leery of nuclear because of the association with weapons. Um, now, Gen Z, uh, they're coming up, they're very excited. Um, you know, they have the climate strike Fridays and everything. And so I, I think oftentimes they are much more open to nuclear, but they maybe haven't heard about it as much. Um, so I think maybe the old guard has a bit of a prejudice against nuclear, and then maybe the new, um, new excitement and energy around uh, climate change just might not think of nuclear as being that important or um, a, a surprising number of people again don't realize that it's carbon free um, so they're they're pushing renewables 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 um, and by that they mean wind and solar um, and so a lot of the conversations we're having in the United States on a state-by-state -state level is, hey, you know, instead of having a renewable portfolio standard, which is, you know, this state is going to commit to X percentage of renewable energy, and oftentimes it's 100% renewable energy, you know, we'll say, I think it'd be better if you put a clean energy portfolio standard. So, you know, you leave that open to hydro and nuclear as well. Um, and, and I think then, then, you know, that partnership works a little bit better. Um, so I, I don't have all the answers. I'm not entirely sure. Um, may, maybe nuclear is just not as sexy as wind and solar. Um, but I mean, I, I definitely think the math is in your favor. Uh, you know, if you, if you want to, want abundant electricity definitely definitely look at nuclear so i i think we make a great partner um to the clean energy movement and i would love if we could uh you know generate some excitement around nuclear technology oh, yeah, go ahead, just to add one more thing to amanda's uh so the ehrc just did a big report with the uh, natural resources canada where they surveyed 1500 canadians all across Canada from the electricity sector, and uh, it was done through Abacus data. And one of the things they found as well was, uh, in terms of favorability towards different energy sources, uh, nuclear is just in line with natural gas, and uh, just slightly above coal. So it's it's not favorable even for the Gen Z and the millennials as of now. So that's like Amanda said, they're they're more open. But that's the group that we have to target. They're not against it, but they may not just be for it. They may not understand uh, how it can help. And that's where we see Planet of the Humans, the documentary by Michael Moore on YouTube. It's starting to paint a slightly negative view of renewables as well. I don't think enough people have looked into comparing everything for their life cycle impact. So I think as more information starts to get out there about how much uh, land use it is, how much resources it takes, how much energy it can produce, and how fast we can scale it up, because nuclear is one of the fastest ways that a country can decarbonize. I think once people start to look into that, it gets more attention, then we'll start to get the, the shift from millennials and Gen Z over. And I actually just want to go back to something Amanda said that 
uh, we talking about it, we don't know, know about nuclear energy. It sounds almost ridiculous that somebody doesn't know that nuclear is a clean source of energy and it doesn't produce carbon emissions. It's, it sounds almost almost ridiculous to think about that some people actually don't don't know that necessarily. And I think this also goes into how you normalize conversations around nuclear. I mean, when you have people sharing the same opinion about nuclear as they do with the with, with co-generated electricity, that just shows you that there's, that there's a huge gap in terms of knowledge about how, how these two differs. And we even go into, into uh, natural gas and the problem with methane emissions and the leaks and everything. And these just show that there's such a big gap there's, there's such a big gap into how people think about nuclear and how people talk about nuclear. And most of it is because these are not just part of regular conversations. I mean, most people know about wind and solar, as Amanda says, it sounds like a sexy thing to talk about. But when it comes to things like nuclear, it's, it, it's almost hush-hush. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why it feels that way. I, yeah, I think it's just due to the, the history. I, I think so many people have such a fixed opinion of it you know, The Simpsons was out there and it shows, uh, you know, nuclear waste as this goo that's everywhere, these fuel rods that are floating around. Uh, and then uh, just the words Chernobyl, Fukushima, these have been closed discussions. So no matter what you bring up, what you start to talk about with the conversation, those were like the game enders. It was just like, okay, you know, I've seen the Chernobyl miniseries, but that's the end of discussion. You know, it, they said it killed hundreds of thousands of people in that documentary. And then when you refer to the IEA, the United Nations reports that say, okay, you know, it was 28 and maybe a couple thousand have an increased risk of cancer, you know, that it's like, I don't want to hear about it. So I, I feel like we all have to start to say when we meet people at, when we go for a first date, when we go meet people in the grocery store, when we meet our neighbors at the cottage, when they ask what we do, we have to be brave and we have to say, I'm a nuclear energy worker, and we have to be proud of that, because if they don't know anyone that's in the nuclear industry, they can't ask these questions. They can't ask, what do you do with the spent fuel? How clean is it? How much radiation do you get? That's something that, that I know. And the, the radiation I've received in seven years working in the nuclear industry is less than uh, a couple of flights I've taken. So these are just ways that we can reaffirm confidence in the public, but it has to start with talking to people. And one of the best people that, that you can actually talk to is your barber. Tell your barber what you do. He listens or she listens and, and they, they cut other people's hair. They, they, they start these conversations. But if everyone doesn't want to say where they work, if they're afraid of that, if they're afraid of backlash, we're never going to start to change the opinion. So it's, it's got to start with the individuals. And it could just be saying that they work in the nuclear industry. It may not even have a follow-up question, but... Just knowing that people work in the industry, I think, humanizes the uh, the technology. That is that that's actually very well said, and I think that that is really true because something surprising is that some people don't know how much of the electricity, especially in North America, is actually generated by by nuclear plants. They don't know that they're the nuclear plants have been operating for years and years and years and years, and and they don't know they don't hear anything about it because it's it's just doing its own thing, providing reliable energy, and it's something that they still have negative opinions about it's it's almost amazing to think about from that perspective don't you think and and that's the great thing is i always show them it's the app called electricity map and it shows the live uh emissions and grids makeup of uh, different countries around the world 
And you know, it's color-coded, so you can see if they're high carbon intensity, and you can see at different time scales. So you know, what was it like at the middle of the night? What's it in the middle of the day? And really, this is where I can tell people that always say that Germany's doing amazing things. I said, no, they, they just built a new coal plant. They're shutting down nuclear. They're not reaching their climate goals. And then these maps with real-time data can show you where the clean countries are. Like Ontario is, is 60% nuclear and almost the rest is completely hydroelectric. It's, it's France that has predominantly nuclear power. And some of the worst ones out there are like Australia, Poland, that are burning heavy, heavy amounts of coal and natural resources. So I, I think to be able to show them the world makeup and then show them where nuclear is making a difference really, really puts the knowledge in their hands as well. Amanda, I'm curious what you think about this. Oh, yeah. Why do people not uh, think nuclear is clean? Uh, one of my theories is pop culture. Um, for decades, nuclear has, you know, with the Godzilla, the breathing radiation, um, the HBO Chernobyl series came out last year, like all of that. Um, and and there is, you know, the HBO Chernobyl series, there, there is some good to it, right? There's some factual, historical, factual uh, stuff that's really good. But oftentimes the science is is like not exactly explained very well. And so the, you know, the idea that I think a lot of people find radiation scary. You can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't feel it, so you don't know when you're being irradiated. And, and there's just, there's so much, I, I mean, like, every show I've seen, all the, all the sci-fi I watch, it's radiation is portrayed in like this really weird manner, right? But, but really, <laughs> um, radiation has been, we have, we have evolved in a radioactive world, right? Like we are being irradiated constantly. We are giving off radiation. When you sit next to somebody, you are irradiating them. We, we evolved in a world bathed in radiation, right? So it's, it's a very natural phenomenon and our bodies have evolved to, you know, to deal with it. Um, we evolved to be able to see uh, visible light is part of the electromagnetic like radiation spectrum, right? So it's not ionizing radiation, but we, so I, I think there's like this radiation was something that we made, it's man-made, but it, it's really a very natural phenomenon. Um, in fact, so the whole, the whole process that Matt was speaking about that, um, you know, we use fission, splitting atoms to make heat to boil water. So even that is a natural process. There was actually in Africa, uh, it's called the Oklo reactor. Um, and so it was several billion years ago, um, but there was enough uranium and enough water in a certain configuration that the naturally underwater you had a, or underground, sorry, not underwater, underground you had a natural nuclear reactor generating heat and it would boil off the water and then it would um, you know there wouldn't be as enough moderation and so the the reaction would stop and this went on for several hundred years um, and so 
I think maybe it just nuclear got the mysterious, um, you know, kind of persona from that World War Two uh, weapons development, and so a lot of secrecy around it. But but really, it's a pretty natural phenomenon. You know, the, our sun, if you think about it, that's, that's fusion, that's not fission, but it's still nuclear reactions taking place. Um, so, one might say that solar energy is really powered by nuclear energy. <laughs> but I think Amanda hit on a good point here as well about radiation, is there's this misconception, this misunderstanding that radiation is a form of heat transfer. It's one of the three basic ways and then there's ionizing radiation. And I don't think enough people know the difference between those two. And they don't even know what radiation does. A lot of people don't realize that um, food and fruits and other things are usually bombarded with radiation through gamma radiation to sterilize them, to kill bacteria, to make the food healthier, to make it, uh, there's so many different ways, but that doesn't make the food radioactive. So I think that's, that's even another level of understanding is alpha, beta, gamma versus neutron bombardment and what can make other things radioactive, what can't, and what can be stopped with the layer of your skin versus what needs blood shielding. I think there's this huge misunderstanding there. People just keep using the word radiation. The, the phone's emitting radiation, but it's not ionizing radiation. So I think that's the, that's the big thing that uh, is a misunderstanding as well. It's not helping these things. And, uh, uh, we actually ran out of time, so I actually, <laughs> unfortunately, I have to try to start rounding up. But I actually have a kind of like a closing question. Uh, let's say you meet somebody who knows absolutely nothing about nuclear energy, and uh, you have a conversation. What is the one thing you would like the person to walk away from that conversation with you? Like, what is the one thing that you just wish people knew about nuclear that would really help out, just in general, for yourselves, for the industry, and the mission at NYG, and just. What do you think is the one thing that you would wish that people would walk away from learning about nuclear when they talk to you or when they see any material about nuclear? So the, the one message I like to make sure people walk away with is association with carbon-free. So nuclear is carbon-free, just like wind, solar, hydro. Um, so kind of exactly what you were saying with a lot of people just don't put it in that bucket. And so trying to get as many people as possible to realize that really it should be in that category. Um, and then oftentimes that leads to, oh, okay, well, but I've heard about, you know, Yucca Mountain or nuclear waste or weapons, you know, and so that leads into, okay, you know, like tell me what your questions are about that and I can kind of uh, walk you through that. But I want you to know and I want you to leave this conversation with the fact that uh, nuclear energy is clean energy. Um, so that's my, that's always my goal. I, 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 it's not a hundred percent success rate, but that's my goal. <laughs> Mine, mine's similar, but a bit different. I was as great for the environment. So I, I focus on the land utilization. So since it's such an energy dense source, it uses a lot less land than renewables, coal, all these other alternatives. So that's one of my main things is if you want more forest, if we want to maintain more green space, nuclear is great for that, as well as it uses a lot less natural resources. 
So since the nuclear station can be there for 60 to 80 years, you just need the initial investment of concrete and steel, and it's just chugging away with 90-plus capacity factors, just uh, generating clean electricity while using such a small amount of natural resources. So since, again, uranium is such an energy-dense fuel, you don't need to mine as much. So you're mining so much less natural resources compared to others, it's great for the environment. And as Amanda said, you're not burning anything, so you're not producing sulfur dioxide, you're not producing nitrous dioxide, you're not killing people through pollution, and you're saving the planet. So that's, that's really what I like to, to tell people is what, contrary to what you may have seen in popular culture, nuclear is the greenest that we can do for energy production. Thank you for listening to the episode. Uh, I hope you kept an open mind and you learned something new about uh, nuclear. So this episode, I'm going to put some extra resources into the um, show notes, the description of the episode, just to, if you want to learn more about nuclear or if you want to learn more about specifically about uh, radiation and the effects of radiation. So there's this episode, a podcast episode I hosted for Tens of Nuclear that I highly recommend about uh, radiophobia, which is the fear of radiation and how that kind of plays into how people uh, perceive the nuclear industry. And yeah, so I encourage you to learn some more. If you want to reach out to Matthew and Amanda, just email us. We'll get you connected. And uh, yeah, I hope we see you again on next week's episode. Have a lovely day and thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Oh, before I forget, if you like the episode, please share with a friend, leave us a rating, a review, uh, follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at The Energy Talk Everywhere. Um, just a minute sharing the episode with a friend or a colleague could help us out massively, especially if you leave a review. So uh, thank you again. Uh, yeah, so that's it. Have a lovely day and see you next week.